This is the Ruby on Rails podcast. Well, it's the holidays. Great time to spend a few days away from the computer, gather together with family and friends, and listen to old episodes of the Ruby on Rails podcast. First, though, a few announcements and clarifications. The contest we talked about last time, due on January 7th. What you got to do is make a blog post about as many Vancouver, Canada bands who have made the big time and signed a record contract. Blog about that. Send it to contests at canadaonrails.com. Do that by January 7th. You could win yourself two free tickets to the Vancouver Canada on Rails conference and a $100 dinner. Training opportunities are coming up if you want to learn Rails from some of the best. First, we have Dave Thomas Mike Clark teaching the Pragmatic Studio in Denver. It's happening in January. Go to pragmaticstudio.com. Marcel Molina is teaching Rails Bootcamp in Atlanta. Go to bignerdranch.com. You know Marcel from Projectionist and Ionist. Now he works 37 Signals. That's happening in March. So go to bignerdranch.com. Finally, yours truly will be teaching two Rails workshops, one in Seattle, one in Los Angeles, both happening in January. Find out about it at topfunky.com or dvcreators.net. little apology for the audio quality of this interview. I tried three different times to interview Avi. Technical problems and operator ineptitude on my end were finally overcome, but the network between Seattle and Vancouver was a little flaky. Fortunately, Avi's one of the most brilliant programmers I've interviewed for this show, so if you can get over the grainy quality of the audio, it's a thought-provoking interview, and I hope you enjoy it. If you've read The Pragmatic Programmer, you've heard the suggestion that you learn a new programming language every year in order to exercise your mind in new ways. Today we're going to do a little bit of that for you. At a recent technology conference in Seattle... Ryan Davis said, I defy anyone to come up here and use any other framework to duplicate what we're doing in Rails as quickly, except for Avi. And that's who we're talking to today. Avi Bryant, the founder of Small Thought Systems in Vancouver, British Columbia, and author of the Seaside Web Framework. You probably heard Seaside mentioned at RubyConf a few times, and Many times it's been listed alongside Rails as another type of web framework, but in fact it's completely different from Rails, it was developed previous, and works in a totally different way. You can learn more about Seaside at seaside.st. So welcome to the show. Thanks. Many people look at Rails and think, wow, I don't have to write SQL anymore, it makes my life a lot easier. But with Seaside, you barely even have to write HTML Give us a little summary of what Seaside is and how it works. Sure. I think uh, both Seaside and Rails are sort of defined maybe not so much by which features they have as by sort of an underlying design philosophy and aesthetics. Um, and I think the best way to introduce Seaside to, to a, a Rails audience is that 
if you can say that one of the core Rails philosophies is share nothing, uh, one of the core Seaside philosophies is share everything. That is, that there's, there was a basic design decision made in Seaside that let's see if we make the assumption that we are going to have a session run in a single process, and we're going to take advantage of everything that we can do if we keep the session in memory the whole time, what kind of abstractions and conveniences can we build on top of that? Um, and uh, a lot of what that does is a lot of tricks for continuations and closures sort of come out of that philosophy. Uh, and so, for example, in Rails or in most web frameworks, you have to be thinking when you're generating a link about, okay, how am I going to marshal the state, the information about what this link needs to do in a way that when it comes back to my unshared or Sorry, yes, to my unshared session, uh, I'm going to be able to recreate what it is that I want to do. And inside, you can just say, here's a block that I want evaluated when you click on this link. And because we're using this in-memory session, that block can just get stashed away somewhere. And when someone clicks on that link, boom, you evaluate that block. So a lot of the worries about marshaling state and a lot of the worries also when you bring continuations into it about how your workflow progresses and how you indicate where you are in the workflow using the URL or using a form field or something like that, they just kind of go away. Um, and that ends up sort of having ramifications all up the line. You just are able to build up a lot more layered abstractions uh, a lot more development support once you make that basic trade-off. And one of the things I read that you had mentioned earlier is that, hey, what other type of programming do we do where we're actually writing file formats and doing such low-level stuff, and yet we've come to just kind of assume, oh, you know, if I'm going to be a web programmer, I've got to write HTML directly instead of having it generated or having something in between that that's going to automate that. Right. I mean, if you can imagine asking a desktop uh, developer to use a widget API where the only events that ever came in were a dictionary, you know, a, a hash table full of strings, they'd laugh at you, right? Where you weren't allowed to put up a modal dialog box. I mean, it's, it, it, it's ridiculous. It would take up so much of your time. And it does take up so much of your time as a web developer. And Rails does a good job of building what abstractions it can on top of that, given the restrictions that Rails design philosophy has. Um, but Seaside just makes a different set of trade-offs, and so it can go a little bit further within that constraint. I'm always amazed that during the late 90s, big boom in website development, billions of dollars spent on companies and web applications, and even whole languages were written with web applications in mind, called Fusion, PHP, whatever, and yet this kind of functionality wasn't developed, and it's only been the last couple of years that people have started to think a lot more about a web framework that really does a lot more. Why do you think that is? Is there something recent that has happened, or people just got sick of doing it the same old way? Part of it, I mean, it's interesting because most people, although people weren't necessarily aware of these techniques, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't being used. And I mean, a lot of my inspiration from Seaside originally came from reading the stuff that Paul Graham wrote about what he was doing with ViWeb back in the 90s. Um, and he was just being very quiet about it at the time because he saw these techniques of using dynamic languages, of using closures, uh, of doing everything in the image. 
as being a, a competitive advantage for his company. Um, and so I think you've kind of always got that division between the mainstream technology uh, that's never the best technology out there because the people that have the best technology don't want to talk about it that much. And I think maybe what's changed is that open source has become such a big deal and people have really started to realize the value of, oh, we don't want to keep this technology secret. It actually benefits us more if we do talk about it and do get other people involved uh, and that lets other people work on it. And so these technologies that were sort of hidden, um, and I, I mean, I think Smalltalk is, is a great example of that. Smalltalk gets used inside a lot of uh, investment banks, uh, insurance companies that, that haven't wanted to talk about it. And the open source movement is really starting to sort of bring this out and, and, and bring a lot of this stuff more into the open. That makes a lot of sense. Well, speaking back specifically about Seaside, some of the first questions about Rails were very skeptical. And would you just answer these straight out so that people don't have to ask these about Seaside over and over? Can it scale? Is there an IDE? How many programmers are available? Is it hard to find people to work on projects in Seaside? And is there commercial support? Sure. So as for scalability, I mean, the thing to say about that is that Seaside makes a very conscious decision to trade computing resources for development resources. We try to make it easy for the developers and to allow you to scale that way, and it is resource heavy. So a Seaside application does have a very high memory footprint, uh, has a relatively high CPU footprint, and as long as you can partition your application well enough, then that's not really a problem. But you are going to have to throw more hardware at a Seaside application for a given type of application than you probably would have to with some other frameworks. The usual guideline I give is that if you have a megabyte or two megabytes of RAM in your server for every concurrent user you expect, you're probably okay. So that means on a typical box, you're only going to be able to support maybe a thousand concurrent users. That's the kind of problem that's kind of a good thing to have. You know, once you're up to a thousand concurrent users, you can probably afford to be running a few different boxes and have a load balancing system that's got some session affinity, and then you're okay. As for an IDE, Seaside runs on two Smalltalk platforms at this point, Squeak, which is an open source Smalltalk, and that's where the main development happens and what I use, and VisualWorks, which is the main commercial Smalltalk environment. Both of those have excellent IDEs. Really, I mean, if you haven't used a Smalldoc IDE, you, you, you don't know what an IDE really can be. One of the usual examples that, that I give when I'm showing this off to people uh, is that actually I ended up writing a lot of my code in the debugger because whenever there's a problem with your application, you'll get a debugger pop up immediately, and you can use that to explore and get a sense of where you are and, where, and, and what the data is doing wrong, and just change the code right there and hit proceed, and your program will just continue from that point. Those kinds of things just don't exist in a lot of other IDEs. Uh, as for how many programmers are available, um, the Seaside mailing list has a few hundred people on it. I'm sure a lot of those people would be delighted to help out on projects, although I don't really have a sense of how many of them would be able, uh, available for hiring full-time at any given point. I've never heard of anybody having a Seaside project and being unable to find people that were able to work on it. And really, there are a lot of, it's not that hard to pick up. If people are familiar with object-oriented programming or, you know, if they know Ruby, Smalltalk is trivial for them to pick up. Um, the framework's not that hard to pick up. I just don't see that as a concern. If there are some people you want to hire that can be able to figure out what framework you want to work on. Uh, and we do, Smalltalk does provide support. 
a couple of weeks ago on your blog, you uh, wrote that working in Ruby is still a pleasure, but there are definitely projects for which the immaturity of the implementation and the environment get severely in the way. We already know Ruby really needs things like a bytecode format and better virtual machine and things like that. Could you talk about what are the things do you feel like are Ruby's shortcomings that make it hard for a project like Seaside? Uh, well, for a project, I mean, Seaside in particular, I think you could implement Seaside in Ruby. Uh, and I think Michael Newman's uh, Wii framework is actually a pretty good example of what happens when you try to take some of the design philosophies in, in Seaside and uh, implement them in Ruby. Or Oracle did a, a port, a uh, direct port of Seaside called Borges. But I, I think the kinds of things when I, that I was thinking about when I said that is that Ruby is, I mean, we, we all... Uh, everyone that, that's in the Ruby community or in the Smalltalk community kind of feels that dynamic languages are ideally what we want to be working in and, and how we want to be solving problems. And the problem that I often run into uh, if I think about using Ruby is that you can only use Ruby part of the way down. That there are some aspects of problems where if, for example, you need to really control the performance aspects or if you need to really control the memory footprint of something where Ruby doesn't give you that ability. I can't know if I'm trying to build uh, a B-tree in Ruby exactly what the memory footprint is going to be, and I can't control that. And so for doing some kinds of computationally intensive stuff uh, where I don't think the dynamic language aspect of it is a problem at all, but I think some of the choices, the implementation choices that are sort of traditional scripting language implementation choices, like using a hash table, for instance, variables, rather than some of the choices that are made in Lisp and Smalltalk VMs, where they really are thinking about sort of being able to, in theory, implement an operating system on top of this thing. It's just a different, it's a different focus. It's much harder to implement a development environment in Ruby because you don't have full access from within the language to things like the stack frames, and so implementing a debugger in itself is very difficult. And so it means that at a certain point, depending on what you're going to do, you're going to have to drop down to the C level. And that's really, that's, that's from my point of view a shame. I want, to, I want to avoid doing that as much as possible. And if I've got a large project of people, I really want to be able to, to work in the one environment and the one language as much as possible. Well, a few weeks ago on this show, Chad Fowler observed that Rails has gotten where it is because of an intense marketing and an effort to present it as the next big thing. Do you plan any kind of marketing push for Seaside, or are you just going to let it grow naturally? I'm not planning any big marketing push. I mean, I, I, I really don't feel a need to uh, make Seaside be a, a mainstream technology or something that I really want to. I mean, I, I don't want to spend my time giving a lot of seaside talks and touring the country and pushing people to use seaside. I mean, it really was developed as Rails was as a thing to support internal projects and to the extent that it's useful for other people and to the extent that we can get a little bit of the word out there of other techniques, that's great. Uh, but it's not the, uh, the major focus of what I'm doing. Well, we also have a few questions sent in from different Rails developers who heard about this, that this was going to happen. So here are a few. Uh, one says, I'd love to hear your thoughts about running Ruby on a Smalltalk VM. You know, it seems like maybe it would be a good idea, but do you think that's possible and would that be a worthwhile direction for Ruby to go? 
Yeah, I mean, I so I personally think that would be a great idea. Actually, about a year ago, I started seriously looking at whether or not that was sort of a commercially viable thing to do and contacted a couple of people who probably thought I was nuts and sort of said, let's say I could give you a Ruby VM that was 20 times faster than the current one. What would you say? Would that be worth anything? And other stuff ended up taking up my time, and I didn't end up doing it. But they are such close languages. I mean, the object model is just absolutely identical. And the Smalltalk community has 20, 30 years of research into making this exact object model run really, really fast and has all of these great tools built around it. And it just seems such a shame to me that Ruby has this big community of people, has all of this momentum behind it, but it's not taking advantage of a lot of the implementation technologies that are just sitting there waiting for it. So I think that would be a great thing. And I've been to what I can, you know, to what extent I can, pushing the Smalltalk vendors to see if they'd be interested in supporting a Ruby product on top of their platform. I'd love to work with someone who is interested in doing that, but it's not something that I have time to really focus all of my energies on right now. Someone else says, of course, many programmers are coming to Ruby in order to, to do Rails. They're attracted by Rails. But let's say I'm a Java programmer and I know about Seaside, I know about Rails. In what kind of projects do you think Seaside would be a better choice versus Rails? So I think there is a a level of complexity of application that you will find that Seaside ends up making easier to do than Rails. And a lot of what, when I talked about a lot of the advantages that you get once you throw away the idea of share nothing, a lot of them boil down to reuse of one kind or another. And that you are able to have pieces of your application either uh, that can be used on a lot of different pages or that get access to a lot of different parts of the application. One of the examples that Paul Graham uses for this I'm talking about in his work on VioWeb is that so the, the store application that he had, uh, this was what became Yahoo Stores. And a lot of what you were doing as a user, one of the things that you had to do a lot was to pick colors for things. Just pick, you know, what, what color is this side guard? are going to be, what color is this background going to be. And his competitors would have just a, a form drop-down with colors, or you could type in a hex value or something. But what he did is he could, from anywhere in the application, go off to a separate page that was a full big color picker and then return to it. And so that color picker got reused in a whole bunch of different contexts in the application. And if you think about how you need to do that in a typical web application, you need to submit something, you need to have some get some information to that page so that it knows where it's going to return to. And that's the kind of thing that Seaside's continuation abstractions just makes disappear. You can just make it look like a modal call where you're just calling this color picker and you're getting back an example, uh, an answer of a color, and your code can just continue from there. And so if you find that you're building applications where you're using the same kinds of pages to the same kinds of widgets over and over and over again uh, in lots of different contexts, then I think Seaside's approach ends up being a big win. If you are doing a sort of typical database CRUD application, especially if you're using a relational database backend, which isn't something Seaside community has really focused on a lot uh, because the Smalltalk world tends to be more interested in object databases. 
as a whole than in relational databases, then I think Rails might end up being a more comfortable choice. Two other questions from the community here. Smalltalk has great refactoring tools that Ruby could benefit from. If you were going to go about making some of those refactoring tools for Ruby, do you think you would just port straight from Smalltalk's tools, or would you think that they should be started from scratch? That's an interesting question. I think the Smalltalk tools make a lot of assumptions about the semantics of the Smalltalk language and the way, in particular, that the Smalltalk environment is constructed where all you have are classes and methods. And there's at any point, you can sort of take a snap out of the, of the system and break it down purely to which classes you have, which instance variables they have, which methods they have. And Ruby is much more about the order of evaluation. And so it's much harder to make uh, properly semantics-preserving transformations on it. Because if you have one file that does something to a class and then another file that might conditionally do something else. So if this instance variable has already been defined in this method, if it hasn't, do something else. It's going to be almost impossible for a refactoring tool to look at that and make sense of it and, and, and be sure that once it's done the transformation, the semantics are going to be preserved. So to do refactoring tools for Ruby, I think, is actually very difficult because of that, that a lot of the nice things that let you do uh, metaprogramming in Ruby that let you do code generation really easily actually make it very difficult to do a static analysis of Ruby code, which then makes refactoring with any kind of certainty that what you're doing is going to not have some kind of negative effect somewhere uh, difficult to do. So I'm not sure just porting the Smalltalk tools would help, although I'm sure there would be a lot of inspiration that you could drive from them. Overall, it'd take something a lot more specific to Ruby that would be able to handle all the features of Ruby that would require it. I think so, and I think Ruby, when you're talking about refactoring, ends up being a little more comparable to Lisp, uh, and there really haven't been any Lisp refactoring tools in the same way. Uh, I whereas I think Smalltalk and Java both share some of the same properties in terms of the kinds of static analysis that you can do on their source code, and that's why refactoring has been able to, to really thrive in both of those languages. Well, finally, your current project is DabbleDB which you say is an app for all those projects where people are using a spreadsheet for a certain project but shouldn't be. Given the ease of programming that Smalltalk and Seaside gave you, you put it, it looks like you put a lot of information, a lot of effort into the interface of DabbleDB. What were some of the technical problems that you ran into that had to be overcome in order to come up with such a fluid and flexible interface? Well, what we're going for with Dabble is to have it be very interactive and to have it be very incremental so that you can be always evolving what your data model is. And it turns out that to do that with any kind of decent performance takes some different, very different approaches to how you model the data internally than we were used to and that a lot of people are used to that if you build it on top of a relational database, for example, it just wasn't realistic to do the kind of constant data migration that Babel allows you to do and still properly get any kind of decent performance out of it. We were also trying to make it really dynamic in terms of how the updates of things like filtered result lists happen. So if you have a list of a few thousand items, 
and you're currently looking at one item in it and you modify that item, we want to immediately jump to that item to immediately jump to wherever its new position in this say sorted list of results is, or if it suddenly should disappear from the list because the filters changed, then we want that to happen immediately. And to be able to do kind of a partial evaluation in this batch list, which items should show up and what order they should show up and still have the kind of instant response times we are looking for required very different data structures than a relational database would give us or a very different kind of querying than a relational database would give us. For listeners, uh, not publicly available yet, but you can read about it at dabbledb.com. Is that the right address? Yes, that's right. And we're uh, slowly expanding our, our private beta program and we're hoping to... Uh, launch in the next few months. So if but if anyone's interested in joining our beta, send me an email. I'm uh, I'm happy to, to, to throw on some more people. Well definitely with all the Rails videos, build a blog in fifteen minutes, build a customer relationship management in thirty minutes, whatever this the stakes are high, but I sat down with Dabble and put together a little bug tracking database with statuses and different users and that kind of thing. And I think it only took me about five or 10 minutes, even though I hadn't used it before. It was pretty impressive. That's great to hear. Well, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. I'm glad this fi- we were able to f- connect finally. Thank you. Well, last night I sacrificed three iPods at midnight, so I think that was pro- <laughs> did the trick. Yeah, that, that always works. Well, this has been the Ruby on Rails podcast. Junkie, Chunky Baker! Chunky Baker!